So, uh, welcome to everybody, no matter where you are, whether it's New Mexico, Texas, Ohio, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, uh, Mexico, Santa Maria, Lompoc, Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, even Orkut, all those spaces in between, all those little things, uh, Napomo, Alaska, I can't think of anything else, but that, that, that's what I got. Uh, it is July 5th, and you're all here and have all of your hair on your head, most of you, so you made it through the war zone last night. I don't know if anybody, if you're in Orkut, last night was louder than anything I've ever heard since I've lived out here. It was like a war, it's like, it's just like the, the COVID protest of kaboom! It's just crazy, crazy. Didn't know what to do with it all. My dog was freaking out. So it's good to see you all here and in one piece. That That's great. Um, what, what we are doing, when you looked at that video and Christy's talking about camp and stuff, uh, the fireworks booth that we do is geared directly towards helping kids go to camp and things like that. Uh, so what happened is because of the whole COVID thing, they actually cut the time in camp in half. So they would like drive up for a week-long camp on a Sunday and stay there Monday and Tuesday and drive back on a Wednesday, but this cost didn't change. And so we're like, that's eh, not really a good use of people's money. So what we're, what we're doing is they're going to plan something else instead, at, hopefully at the end of summer where things open up a bit. Uh, but the fireworks booth itself, it did better than it has any other year, which is one because we only had one last year. But it did better than last year. And uh, I think in the end, they, the children's ministry is going to net to themselves, after all the costs, a little over $20,000. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. I think they ended up selling, in the end, almost $52,000 from that booth. So, you know, it's, it's great. Uh, E1, still working for us over there. It's, it's great. So, uh, if you are newer, newer to Element, I would like to say welcome to you. What you can do is download this app. It is called Uversion. And after you download Uversion, if you're not in Santa Maria, uh, you can type in the zip code when you put on more events, 93455. And we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Well, if you're in the room, why don't you stay with me for the reading of God's Word? If you are at home, this is the reading of God's word, and it's James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people uh, who love and honor you no matter what circumstance our life goes through. That we would trust you in the midst of those places, in the midst of those things, because you are good. And you have a plan and you will grow us to know who you are better through all of these things. Teach us to be those who trust you, be those who trust in the Lord, who are not moved like the mountains, because you are a God who is not moved. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is uh, the book of Acts. We're calling it part two because we did part one a couple years ago. So it's part two of two. This is week 25. And what you will see happen today is Paul is going to now start his trek to go into the city of Jerusalem because God has called him to go there. And as he goes, a lot of people who love God try to convince him not to go into Jerusalem because they all know what happens in Jerusalem. And that is the religious leaders kill people. That's what happens when they get there. 
And there's a lot of different views on the passage we look at today. Some will talk about Paul's bravery. Other people will talk about how Paul must have been in sin and he wasn't listening to godly advice. I am calling it hardship doesn't mean that God said no or hardship doesn't mean that God says stop. Many times today when things get hard, people say, oh, well, God must be putting up roadblocks or God must not be in that or telling you not to do it. Like, easy is only from God. Like, is it God's will? Push the easy button. If it all works out, well, then it must have been God's will. That's not how God works or grows us. Many times God takes us through things that are very hard to grow us into the people he intends for us to be. Here's some examples. Uh, Marriage. (laughs) Marriage. Don't believe the movies or those trashy romance novels that are out there. Marriage is hard because people are insane. Okay, I'm glad you're agreeing with me. Marriage, in the end, isn't meant to be about us. Marriage is learning how to be a servant of someone else. And that's difficult, and it's hard, and we all fail at it. But in the end, it's meant to be a reflection of God's love for the world. Its purpose, in the end, is to make us holy. And if we think marriage is all about us, it's not going to last. And if it does, it's going to be miserable for us. When marriage is hard, does it mean it isn't from God? No. How about children, right? Children, don't let those parenting books fool you, okay? Kids are hard. You're raising tiny little demons who want to destroy the world. That's what's happening. They're like, pinky in the brain. I want to take over the world. You're three. I know. It's going to happen, right? When kids get hard, does it mean they're not from God? No, no. How about learning the Bible? Some people say, if God wanted us to know the Bible, he would download it into our brain through the angel radio, and we just learn it all. Well, that's not how it works. God wants us to study and ponder and think and wrestle so our faith and knowledge is born out of the understanding that God has loved us and been devoted to us, so we are devoted to him as well. Is knowing the Bible always easy? No, it's not. Almost nothing of value ever comes easy. Think about our own salvation. It was bought by Jesus' blood on the cross. He dies for our sins. So we got to get rid of this idea that only easy is from God. And when things get hard, God has said no. Many times the hardest trials in our lives can be God's act of grace to us as a people. Uh, Think about what we're going through right now with with the coronavirus, right? What is going on? It's miserable. It's terrible. What do we do? Well, in the end, God is going to do what he intends to do, and it will bring him glory, and somehow he's going to bring purpose and meaning to every little bit of it. Sometimes God does smooth out the road, and it's beautiful when he does, but sometimes and most of the time it is hard. Here's an example. April 14th, 1521, uh, Martin Luther, the great church reformer, he's on his way to this council meeting at a place called the Diet at Worms. And that's not what they eat. The Diet is like a council meeting. Worms is the place. I know it sounds like something off Nickelodeon, but it's not. At this point, he is being called to account for his beliefs and his writings about grace. Uh, At this point, there's also an emperor in Germany. And the emperor has ordered all of Luther's books seized. All of his writings are not allowed to be put out anymore. And there's a bounty on his head, dead or alive. And so Luther's life is in great danger. A lot like you see what happens in Paul's life. So Luther is devoted, uh, has a devoted friend named George Spalatine. And George Spalatine says, do not go to Worms. They're going to kill you if you go there, just like John Huss, who was another reformer. And so Luther responds with this, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. I shall go to Worms, though there were as many devils as tiles on the roof. 
And what happens at Worms is one of the coolest things that really ever happened in the Reformation in the modern history of the church. Martin Luther does what he does. He defends the faith. He defends grace because he understands that God's grace and God's truth and God's love is leading him to this place. He knew God's will, just like Paul does in the verses we look at today. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. The Apostle Paul, as I said at this point, is going to Jerusalem. He's going to minister to the church there. there. Everyone knew that he was either going to be imprisoned, killed, or both when he gets there. And I think Paul is a great example for all of us. Whether you are struggling to know God's will in something, or maybe you know what God is calling you to do, you're just really afraid to do it. You see Paul step into this with wisdom and moving forward with what God has called him to do. And there's all these insights you see in his life life where sometimes we would get derailed, so it's good to see what God is doing in his life. Uh, Last week, Paul experienced all these tearful farewells. Uh, Jeff talked about this uh, in Acts 20, verse 23. Uh, He's talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, you will most likely never see my face again. Paul knows that what is in front of him is prison and hardships, and all these goodbyes were traumatic and emotional, yet Paul did not proceed with reluctance. He actually goes quickly towards where he wants to go. He hurries to get there. Seems weird for us because we always want to run from trials ourselves, but Paul heads directly towards it. So Acts 21, starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them, that's all the people he said goodbye to last week, we set sail. We came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. Now this, if you're traveling on the cheap, this is how you would do it at that time. You'd get on the ship, they'd unload, reload, take you forever to get somewhere. It's like riding the Greyhound bus. Anybody ever ridden the Greyhound bus? Yeah, I don't know why they call it a greyhound. It goes so slow. It's terrible. It stops every town, drops people off, picks people up, unloads cargo, puts on cargo, just like this. I used to go visit my dad from fourth to sixth grade in Northern California, and I rode the greyhound bus. And it took me like a day to get there because it was so terrible. That's Paul's journey. It, it stinks, really. But even after this, where he is entire, he's got 400 more miles to go. But anyway, so they're unloading the cargo. He's got some time. Verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Now, Tyre is a major port in the Mediterranean. The ship, again, is unloading its cargo and reloading. So Paul heads out during these days to find some believers to encourage while he's there. He spends just seven days, and what do they say at the end of that seven days? Don't go to Jerusalem. That's what they tell him. Now, when you read the scriptures, you see adversity is central to Paul's life. You see this in all of his journeys. And yet everyone kept trying to steer him away from them. You read this, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That led some commentators to say that they think Paul was in sin, that he's not listening to God's Spirit saying don't go. But I don't think those are warnings not to go. I think the Spirit is saying this is what's going to happen to you when you are there. It's a spirit warning. Be ready. Gird your loins when you get there because it's going to be hard when you show up. Everyone else thinks that God is saying to Paul, don't go. But I think the spirit is really predicting the persecution against Paul. And it's really hard on Paul. I mean, seven days. Seven days. 
Just seven days. And they all, along with their wives and children, escort him out of the city and knelt down with him on the beach for prayer. Now, they loved him. I give you that. They loved him. But I can only imagine them praying like we would do sometimes, right? A little passive-aggressively. Oh, Lord, thanks for Paul's ministry and how great it is. Please wake him up from being a dummy and tell him not to go to Jerusalem. Like, I can just imagine that. This will happen the next city he gets to called Caesarea. So, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Do you see the theme? Do you see the... Are you wearing masks? I can't tell. Okay, so Paul arrives in Caesarea, which is essentially the port for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is inland. At one point, Herod decided that you needed a port here, so he built one like you do because it's crazy. But Paul could really go into Jerusalem anytime he wanted to now. But he doesn't because you get told in Acts 20, verse 16, that he's waiting for this thing called Pentecost. The whole reason he's rushing to get there is so he can be there for that celebration. And this has a lot of significance for why Paul wants to be there. So let me explain that and then bring this together a bit. For the Jewish people, everything was and is centered around this idea of the Exodus. God coming to rescue and save his people from slavery in Egypt. And when we understand that, it's going to shape us as well. The Jews, they were slaves in Egypt to this taskmaster named Pharaoh. They cry out to God. God hears their cry, and God's going to come to rescue and redeem them. The word redemption that we talk about has all these connotations that point directly to that thing called the Exodus. God brings his people from death to life, from slavery to freedom. In Exodus 12, God will come and speak to his people when he's about ready to have them do this Passover meal. Exodus 12, verses 2 and 3, God says this, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you, meaning even your calendar, your lives, everything is going to change now because of what I'm going to do. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. That's a lamb for each household. And they're given instructions on how to eat this meal, what it's going to represent, and it all centers around this lamb. Because that night they're going to be liberated from slavery, which is death, and brought into freedom, which is life. And this meal again is called the Passover. God says, this is the first month of a new year. Everything now is going to be different. God wakes them up and he's like, let's go. We're out of here. Follow me. And they go. As slaves, they are owned by Pharaoh and they cannot truly be free until Pharaoh is rendered helpless and powerless until he can no longer own them. And again, that's the idea of redemption. God bringing these slaves out of Egypt and into freedom. This will ultimately happen when they cross this thing called the Red Sea. You might have seen it in a movie or a cartoon, though Charlton Heston, Christian Bale, or that cartoon guy had nothing to do with it. God did it all. Uh, the Israelites 
walk across on dry ground through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army drowns, and then the Israelites celebrate. They celebrate because of what God has done, because now they are truly free. Pharaoh's power has been broken over them. Exodus 14, verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel. The word saved there is this word called Yesha. When Jesus comes, his name is Yeshua, and they're very closely related. Moses' sister will craft a song about being free at last. Exodus 15, verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So there is this progression in the text of how this works. There is a Passover meal, and about three days later, there is a defining act of liberation where they cross the Red Sea. Then this group will then wander in the wilderness for 50 days, Pentecost. 50 days later, after this defining act of liberation, God shows up at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and he reveals himself to this people, calls them back to be his image bearers in the world and his representatives. This place, again, is Sinai. You ask commentators, why Sinai? And they say, well, because it's the wilderness. It's not a country. Nobody owns this area. There's not a governor. There's not a political ruler assigning you parking when you show up. Sinai is free from any political and national boundaries. So God meets these in a these people in a place where nobody owns because nobody owns God. God transcends nations and politics and regimes and political parties. He's greater than any way that we think we have carved up this earth, that God is above everything. And if you were a quote-unquote good Jew, every year you would celebrate Passover. And three days later you would celebrate this thing called the Feast of First Fruits, where all the plants that you planted would start to come out of the ground. What was buried in the earth starts to rise up out of the earth. And then 50 days later, you would celebrate Pentecost, the giving of the Torah, the ten words that birthed this movement, that liberated these people, that shares God's saving love with the world. So Matthew 26 in the New Testament, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. And immediately after, he is taken, arrested, and he is crucified and placed into a tomb. He is buried. Matthew 28, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. So you have Passover. You have first fruits. Fifty days after this, all the disciples are gathered together in a room. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. What story do they tell one another at Pentecost? God's rescue, the Exodus story, and how God calls them to be a people and redeems them and brings them back together again, that on this mountain there are voices and fire and what God did and God's hope for all people. I think Paul wants to celebrate that in Jerusalem at the birth of the movement of Christianity where Jesus died and rose from the grave and sent the Holy Spirit. He wants to go there to do that. Paul is with this guy named Philip. Philip was the guy who first took the gospel into Samaria. Uh, he baptized an Ethiopian in Acts 8. That's in Acts part 1 if you want to listen to that. Now he has four daughters and they all prophesy of Paul's difficult future. Then comes this guy named Agabus. I know, great name. You should all name your kids that if you have just Agabus. It's a good name. And he ties himself up with Paul's belt. Very Old Testament prophet-like to say what would happen to Paul. Now, to his credit, Agabus did not interpret the prophecy to say whether Paul should go to Jerusalem or not, but all the Paul's friends did. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke even tells you that he was in on this. And I don't know how much pressure Paul felt from all of his friends in the midst of all these warnings. But at this point, it was at least weeks, could have been months, might even been years of people telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Again, everyone, even Luke, begging Paul not to go. And Paul kind of breaks. Verse 13 says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Paul acknowledges, you guys are tearing my heart apart. God has called me to do this, and this hurts so much. And Kent Hughes writes this, what Satan and his forces could not do was happening through his brothers and sisters. It's like, ouch, ouch. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the Lord of the will be done. That also sounds a little passive aggressive, doesn't it? Fine, Paul, let the will of the Lord be done. Yeah, right? After these days, we got ready, went up to Jerusalem, and they went with him. That's kind of cool. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And that ends Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, after this, uh, he will be arrested, and you'll see what kind of happens in that. But I want to talk to you about this question. Why all the pressure? Why all the pressure? Why do we naturally assume when things are hard that it means God is saying no? Why does Paul encounter so much pressure from his, hint, uh, from his friends? Uh, Kent Hughes talks about this, has a couple things. I added a couple, so I'm going to put these all together. And the first one is this, is love. Is love. They loved Paul. They did not want to see him suffer. Again, they knew what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. And there's all these parallels now between Paul's life and Jesus' life in his final moments. Jerusalem is a place Jesus even said loves to kill the prophets of God. Luke's gospel account that precedes the book of Acts, the culmination is Jesus going into Jerusalem and being laid their hands by the religious leaders and him being killed and crucified. He does rise from the grave, but there's all this stuff that happens in Jerusalem. And I'm sure Luke's thinking, I'm writing the book of Acts. I don't want it to end the same way as my gospel account. Poor Paul, what's going to happen to this guy? So they're all in it, but they did it because they loved him. Now, Many times, we will do misguided things for love. Am I right? Okay, four of you. That's wonderful. Okay, uh, how about a young couple, right? They're just like, oh, we're so in love. It's so great. We're going to move in together. And then they move in together. And then a year and a half later, they're on Judge Judy because they hate each other. Right? It's like, but oh, but we love each other. How about right now? All this emotion and angst that's going on with people, and they're burning down their own neighborhoods. There's all this stuff that takes place. I think what happened for Paul, is Paul got clarity about what God was calling him to. That God's Spirit said, this is what I want you to do. Go to Jerusalem. And I think if he didn't have that clarity beforehand, he might have been persuaded not to go. It is why for us, when we have big decisions coming up, it's important for us to spend time with God, to pray, to seek what He wants us to do. When I have big things coming up, what I will typically do is get away from everybody. I'll even take a little journal notebook, and I don't journal for anything. And I will sit down, I will pray, I will listen, I'll seek God's guidance. And then when God says, this is what I want you to do, and I I got it, that's when I will get up and step into the hard situation. Because when you're in the middle of emotion, it is very easy to turn away from what God is calling you to do, because things are so emotional. We allow God to set our course before we step into the storm. And here's a good question to go with that when you're trying to figure that out. Do you want your life to reflect Jesus? That's a good question. And whatever I do, I would love for my life to reflect who he is. So that's a question to ask when we seek God in the midst of it. Now, I know years ago they used to have these WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? I know it's kind of cheesy, but it's still kind of true. Do we want our lives to reflect him? The second thing is that Paul's acquaintances demonstrated this all-too-common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. Isn't it so much easier to know God's will for someone else's life than your own life? Oh, this is what you should do. We love to tell people that all the time. Now, I think it is important to listen to godly counsel and advice, but we must first listen to God himself. We have to many times stop making snap judgments or offering spiritual formulas. What matters is God's will for us, not what others sometimes think we should do. 
Again, this will come back to listening to God first. Are we listening to God? I was talking to somebody this week who made some horrible decisions in his life recently. And I said, and I said, are you spending time with God in the midst of this? And he goes, he goes, no, I'm not. Are you reading the scriptures? Are you praying? He goes, no, no, no. And I'm like, well, then how are you ever supposed to know what God's will is if you're not spending any time with him, if you're not developing that relationship? I've had people try and convince me just the dumbest things in the world are okay with God. And I'm like, well, did you pray about it? No. It's like, it's okay with God because we think it's okay with us. We need to find out what God actually wants us to do and do that. God is the one who stands above time. God sees the beginning from the end, so he is the one who is trustworthy. And it is all too often easy to look at other people's lives and judge what they're doing than allow God to speak into us of what he wants us to do. So we should ask ourselves, how does this decision we are making love God? Is what I am doing and stepping into, how does it show my love for who he is because he has first loved me? And I would say, honor God in all of your decisions by loving him first above all. Everything else becomes negotiable. Third thing is well-meaning believers are trying to make Paul conform to their preconceptions. These all kind of go together, I know. But they're saying that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. And I like Paul, and I don't want to lose Paul, and he might die, and I'll be deprived of Paul's ministry. Therefore, it cannot be God's will. This is one of the hardest things for Americans because we are taught, you know, the pursuit of happiness. Everything is, is all about us. And, that, and we function that way. Uh, Herbert Hendon is the medical director of the American Suicide Foundation. He is also the professor of psychiatry at New York, New York Medical College. He was 93 years old when I wrote this message. And this is what he said. It is no accident that at the present time, the dominant trends in psychoanalysis are the rediscovery of narcissism. The society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relations to the question, what am I getting out of it? And this is how people see God and God's will and things in the church today. Oh, God wants me to be happy. Well, if I'm not happy right now, this can't be God's will. Oh, God doesn't want me to suffer or go through hardship or pain. I'm in pain. Therefore, I must not be in God's will. It is terrible theology. It's terrible theology. Oswald Chambers once wrote this. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong with us. Like if you're just looking for someone to whack you in the head with a hammer, there's something wrong with you. He says, to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And that's the difference. We are called to be a people who choose God's will over everything like Paul. We must not make our understanding of God's guidance conditional on our happiness or a sense of completeness for ourselves or for others. And fourth, when trying to turn Paul away from Jerusalem, his friends demonstrated that their focus was more on themselves than on the gospel. And again, don't misunderstand me. Their love for Paul is commendable. It is amazing. They wanted to preserve his life, but their motives were short-sighted. They refused to see God's ultimate purpose. One commentator said they were looking out for Paul's good, but not God's. You know, this has happened actually to us in the life of Element, where people come in and like, this is my thing. Element should do this. Element should do that. And sometimes we get a little off track. But how do we get back on track? Do you know what God calls us to do? We center ourselves on the gospel, on what God calls us to. We always go back to our eyes being upon Jesus himself and what he did. And we base our responses from that. Think about uh, this, this coronavirus thing right now, right? We sent out this questionnaire to people at Element, and you guys, I don't know if you know this, are all over the map. 
Like you got people on one side going, I'm not going to wear a mask, burn down the government. You got people on the other side and they're afraid to leave their homes. And as a church, we have to navigate this with all these people and all these different feelings to center everybody back on the gospel. Because in the end, it's not about us. It is what God is calling us to and focusing on who Jesus is. Well, you see what Paul does in this is he is steadfast through everything. How is he able to do that when we get so sidetracked all the time? Well, I think this is one of the reasons why he wanted to go to Jerusalem and celebrate Pentecost. Because Pentecost is a reminder of the good news of the gospel. The whole celebration is about all of God's promises coming to fruition. Paul walks the way he did in his life because he's approaching life the way that Jesus did. He goes to Jerusalem just like Jesus did among all the plots of the Jews. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles just like Jesus was. And though, spoilers, if you haven't read the end of the book of Acts, he doesn't die in Jerusalem. He doesn't die there. But not for lack of people trying, by the way. But Paul holds firmly to God's revealed will. And you see this from the very first moment he ever met Jesus. He's on his way to Damascus. He he's, hates Christians. He wants to get rid of them when you first understand who he is in the scriptures. And he's going to Damascus with these letters to pull Christians out of their homes and arrest them and, and torture them and probably even kill them. Jesus shows up on this road, knocks Paul on his butt, blinds him. And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He's like, oops. Right? And he's like, what do I do? And, and, and Jesus says, I want you to go into Damascus where you're going. And I want you to meet this guy named Ananias. He's going to pray for you and you'll be able to see again. Jesus then goes into Damascus and he says, okay, Ananias, Paul's coming. And I blinded him on the road and you're going to pray for him. And Ananias is like, why? Why don't you just kill him? He's mean to your people. Just get rid of him. That should be the plan. And this is what Jesus says to Ananias in Acts 19, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's how it really starts. Paul goes through everything Jesus said he would. And Paul trusts Jesus through all of it. Now, I'm not trying to deify Paul. I've shown you other weeks of the mistakes that Paul made in his life. But I will tell you, Paul trusted God through everything. He did not think anything he went through was in vain, even though he experienced hardships and trials. Paul was a guy who sought to please God first before pleasing people. And because he did that, it enabled him to love people, even those who disagreed with him. Paul will say this in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul trusted God's sovereignty over everything, as, as we must. He knew that God knew what God was doing, even when he sent him to Jerusalem. And God knows where he sends us as well, where he calls us to go and be. Uh, Oswald Chambers, as I quoted a second ago, wrote this classic devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And this is what he writes in there. He says, God plants his saints in the most useless places. And this is useless to us, that we think it's useless. Why would God send Paul to Jerusalem? Why does God have us in Santa Maria during the coronavirus? We say, I should be here over, the, you know, here, like over there because I am so useful. God puts his people where they will glorify him. And we are not capable of judging where that is. Maybe God's calling you somewhere in your life and you've been fighting him the entire time about that. Maybe you haven't had the best track record in trusting him. The beauty of Paul going to celebrate Passover, it's the understanding that in the gospel, every day is a new day. Tomorrow can be different. Maybe you haven't trusted God well in your past. We can trust him well starting today and tomorrow and moving forward. 
And sometimes the places that God leads you may not be what you want, but with Jesus, it will be what grows us and others to know and love and trust Him the most. This is what you see in Paul's journey and Paul's life. That he trusted God, even though he made mistakes, he trusted God for where God was calling him in all things. And sometimes, you know, he meanders and goes in the wrong direction here and there, but then he comes back to trust God for what God is doing. And as a people, I think we need to be those who come to the place where we understand that many times, hardships isn't God saying no. Hardships and trials are places where God in his goodness is leading us to know and love and trust him more. This is one of the reasons every Wicked Element we talk about this thing called communion, where we invite you to it. Uh, on the communion tables, you have these you know, self-contained cups. Not like, they're not like before, but you can open that up. There's a cracker inside. You can break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You can drink your shot of grape juice or dip it in there and do it the other way. But if you're at home, you can do it with bread and, and juice at home. But it's the reminder of what Christ did to rescue us. Christ suffered on our behalf. And Hebrews tells us it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Because he knows ultimately what it is going to bring about. And so when we come to the place and we partake in communion, it's the reminder also that many times our hard times are things that will take us back and grow us to understand God's wills better. That we are people who can begin to live in joy because God is simply so good to us. So I'm going to invite you to that. I'm also going to invite the band to come up. And as I do, again, communion. Uh, if, if you need prayer, if you are in this room, uh, you can talk to one of the guys in the band or in the sound booth after service, and, and we'd love to pray with you. Uh, if you are online and you're using YouTube uh, on a computer, you can put in a prayer request on the side. You can also send in a prayer request to connectedourelement.org. Uh, if you would like to pray with one of our elders, uh, just put a thing in there, and, and one of them will contact you. We'll Zoom with you or just call you on the phone if you, if you need prayer about something, because we want to be a people who understand that even in the midst of what we continue to go through, that God is still sovereign, and He is good, and He is still leading us, and we can be a people who live full lives of trust in Him because of the good news of the gospel, God's rescue of us right where we are. Now, if you're in this room, there are offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. If you're online, you can go to our website and give. Again, we give because God gave so much to us. I mean, the good news of the gospel is about God giving first to us. So we respond in that. And I would encourage you guys. I know it's a, it's a holiday weekend and the, and the government is kind of rolling back some of their opening structures and things like that. But I would encourage you to connect with other people this week. And maybe talk through some of those things about maybe the hard times in your life where people are saying, oh, that must not be God's will for you. But maybe you're like, I think God is really calling me towards this. I know it's hard, but I don't know why it's hard, but, but God does. And so we would be those who trust him in the midst of those hardships. And we encourage one another exactly where we are. Because during the midst of this pandemic, everything is hard. Nothing seems to be easy right now. And it seems like it should be easier because no one's doing anything. But it seems so hard. There's so many things going on. So come alongside one another and we encourage one another to trust Jesus in the midst of exactly where we are because he is good. And we ask him what he wants us to do, where he calls us to be. And then we step into those places because our eyes are firmly fixed upon him first. Let's pray. Father, this morning. I want to thank you for the, the life of Paul and the things that we get to read about his mistakes, but also the ways that he trusted you in the midst of all the things that he went through. Father, you are good. And so often in the midst of our own pain, we do not see or recognize 
your goodness. And I ask that you would reset us. Have us begin to understand what the gospel truly is, what this good news of your rescue, this announcement of your grace is, and what it means to us. And so we would understand and see in the midst of all the things that we go through that you are good and that you will bring all things about to your greater glory and your people's joy and your people's good. Have us trust you because you are good when there is nothing good in us and you lead us to yourself. So have us live, especially these days right now, trusting you because we understand your great love that was first given to us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.